Remember Charles Bronson? I remember. Remember him and Death Wish and being badass and cool? I remember. Remember Charles Bronson shooting a bunch of minorities? Oh, I remember. Well, this movie isn't fucking it. This movie sucks. This is Eli Roth's Death Wish. Black Run Podcast presents Death Wish, the shitty one. Hey guys, welcome back to Blood and Black Run Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSplantation.com and I'm joined by my co-host Martin. How's it going? And we are back with a new episode and it's not a spaghetti western, so uh, just... Remember when you were supposed to do a western? Yes. I I remember. I do remember. And we did say that on the last episode when we did Black Panther and... um, no, we don't have terrible memory. Well, yes, we do. I, I have terrible memory. But uh, we didn't forget about Spaghetti Westerns. We just uh, decided that it wasn't the right time because um, Death Wish, the 2018 remake from Eli Roth, which was, is supposed to, supposed to be the 2017 remake, yep, yep. Uh, was hitting theaters around the time we were supposed to do the, the episode. So we just decided to forego the Spaghetti Western craze and just do Death Wish. Because it makes sense and it, it relates to all of the other films that we've previously done. All, all five of the other Death Wishes. So, those, that's the reasoning behind it. It doesn't make it right. If ever, uh, All of those people out there were like, I wanted a spaghetti western this week. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you're getting the Eli Roth Death Wish, so. You probably, you probably thought, like, well, they delayed it before because of a shooting. Maybe they'll delay it again this time. But somebody at Universal... They were like, no, that's not happening. They're like, no, this time. It's happening this time. Or they were like, you know, we cared about Las Vegas, but country music and all, but school shootings? Meh. Either way. Like I said, what did I tell you when we first saw like the poster and and you said they postponed it because of that? I'm like, well, I I said the exact same thing. I'm like, by the time they decide to come out, probably be another shooting. There will be another one. There's going to be another shooting, so. Yep. Yeah. You did say that. that. I mean. Hate to be right on that one because it's a very morbid one, but I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, it did just work out that way. And at this point, I can imagine they didn't want to have those November posters up anymore because they didn't bother to like send out any new posters or anything for Death Wish either. They still proclaimed November release date on them, well, at least around here, yeah. And so, well, the one theater that had the November one around here isn't even showing it. We had the we actually had to drive for this one. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I gotta say that not only was this bad timing for Death Wish all around because of the the recent school shooting, but also because like me and a lot of other people probably didn't even realize that it was coming out. Like I did not know that it was coming out until I happened to look and be like, "Oh yeah, it's a, it, that is coming out, isn't it?" Well, I haven't seen any trailers. I mean, no, outside of like the one, the first one I saw, like before the original release date, I haven't seen any publicity for this film at all. And, and that's kind of why we we did, didn't know about doing it either. Because Which I can almost, to be fair, I can almost kind of see um, them them going that route because, like I said, they probably like it, like not even well, announcing yeah, it, just being like, "All right, we know we're gonna not make money on this." So we'll just take our losses. Don't even bother wasting it into advertising. True. And putting true. it out. Again, because like I said, I don't think it has a wide release. I mean, maybe it does. 
I think it has a wide release, but I think that our uh, local theater didn't really swing for it at but this they, time. But they could put it... Do they, like I was telling you, like Jumanji's been out for fucking ever now. Does that really still have to say anything with even longer, The Last Jedi? Come on. like Well, it's not really about keeping those old ones in theaters. It's more about having to spend the upfront cost on like purchasing Death Wish for the theater. So in our case, because we have such a small theater... And they probably are assuming like opening weekend, not a lot of people are going to rush out and see Death Wish. It's not a huge release. Um, They would not spend as much money opening weekend to buy the film and then get it later on when it's cheaper. But they don't do that around here, though. What do you mean? They don't ever. We don't ever get like a film like a week or two later. Like yeah, after. yeah, we do all the time. They do it all the time, especially in Emerald and Johnstown. Now they're they're starting to do that. Really, like, I've um, never I've never noticed that. Usually it's yeah, you know, like Red Sparrow that's out right now mm-hmm. with Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, we don't have it around here either right now. Um, it, they're just not going to get it until later on as... But that has Jennifer Lawrence boobies in it. Well, you know, but it's, it, it's, it movie, has to do that with... Movie, that movie pays for itself. It's got I mean, it has to do with them recognizing, like, first of all, we don't get a lot of business around here. Second of all, it's Death Wish, Eli Roth's Death Wish. Like, who in their right mind is going to come out and pay money to see that one? And, you know, so it's it's like cutting their losses. Like, we'll get it when it's cheaper. And I think that's what they're doing with, in terms of, like, our local theater. Well, However, that, we were well, able say, to see it in Albany. Well, I was going to say, if that's the case, then, then you might as well just knock it down to having just, like, four... Four theaters of, like... And four showrooms in that theater and, and literally just have the Marvel one... <laughs> <laughs> The Harry the, Potter one, the Harry, the, the Harry po- come out, the DC one, and like the, whatever the Star Wars one, yeah, and that's it. Because and seeing as those two again, are like, like it's like a movie every fucking month, just about, yeah. And then that's it. Well, and, yeah, I mean, we did, and it. then if you really like your movies, and you drive the thirty to forty-five minutes to Saratoga or Albany to go, you know, to the Regal or whatever the Criterion, and where they have every fucking movie under the sun. Yeah, I mean, we did have to travel. We had to go to Albany to see this film. Um, you know, and and even then, you know, for what I would consider to be still opening weekend of it, it was Monday. It was a Monday night. Uh, there wasn't that many people in there. And, I wouldn't have expected it either. Well, I mean, I just think that this movie is getting harassed at the box office. You know, not only from just, you know, critics themselves, but also people I think are going, that have seen it, are going home and saying... Well, first of all, it doesn't really resemble the vigilante film that Charles Bronson did. It's very like far from the sort of grittiness of the original film, and it doesn't really mesh up with that. And doesn't, then it also doesn't, doesn't have, really match with like the novel that it's based off of either. Yeah, no, it doesn't have Michael Winner's touch to it. Exactly. I mean, uh, at least with Michael Winner's, as we'll talk about in this uh, review, he was willing to go the distance and be gritty, and be exploitative, and at least, and I'm not saying that was always a good thing, and in 1974, obviously, um, contextually a bit different, but... Especially when it comes to films. Yes, but I mean, I, I, I would I, say that at least, you know, that original Death Wish had the tenacity to go all the way. It was going all the way in. It was it was going to show gritty violence. It was going to show gritty crime life. Well, that's what when we were t- when we did our uh Death Wish series when we reviewed all five of the Bronson ones, uh we were talking about Death Wish 2 which came out, you know, 8 years after the fact, and we talked about how oh, excuse me. 
how uh, um, this one interview Michael Winner was doing, and the lady was like, "What? Why did you make this film? This is trash. It's like pornography and violent and grotesque. You know, why did you do that? There's no redeeming value to it." And he's like, "Well, why not? You know, push, you know, push the envelope. Right, you know, right. Go. We're get, we have to go further than like what the original did. So, you know, you could even say like, granted, Death Wish Two it." As we talked about, it's not a good movie by any means. No, but it does it, it, it does put it does push things. And Michael Winter was never really afraid to push things. I mean, that original Death Wish film, um, sometimes as ridiculous as it was, in in not as ridiculous obviously as the the series went on to After, be. Yeah, uh, you know, talking about like Death Wish three at its sort of pinnacle and four. And, yeah. and four um, you know, it was ridiculous, but it also it did have its moments of like gritty realism and, and almost nihilism in there that it's like, you know, look at the shittiness of the world and, you know, try to see it through Charles Bronson's character, Paul Kersey's perspective. Um, I don't think that the like looking back at the film, like the moralistic attitude of that film doesn't really uh, work in sort of a more liberal stance now. And I think that but a lot of people um were more they were more willing to look past some of those you know exploitative elements and that's why there was a sort of a prospering of those exploitative elements in the 70s and well as I was gonna say you gotta remember 70s well as I was gonna say you gotta remember too speaking contextually here about like the time period uh you gotta remember the whole you know it's Nixon era, tail end of you know Nixon yep. which you know, Nixon's election after LBJ is a total react, you know, counter reaction to the counterculture movement, and so exploitative like vigilante films like Fighting Crime and like the common man standing up to you know all these criminals, hippies, bums, and whatnot. It's very intuitive and indicative of the time. Again, Death Wish isn't the only vigilante film at the time. You know, I mean, granted, uh, Dirty Harry's not technically a vigilante. Fi- Kind of is because he's a little bit rogue, but he's still he's technically a cop. So he has the uh, he's not just like a an everyman or a civilian character. But even still, tax again, taxi driver. You know, that's mm. a, just a common man goes unhinged, and you know, so there's a shit ton and a bunch of you know films in the early seventies that kind of you know fit that tone and that narrative. French Connection. I mean, again, that's not a vigilante film. It's a crime film, and you know. But Gene Hackman's Popeye Doyle is a crook, you know, like a crooked, dirty cop who's trying to, you know, work outside of the system that he's given in to like accomplish the goals that you know he and the people of New York feel you know needs to be done. Yeah. But I mean, but that's why I think when we talk about this film, what makes the original Death Wish work so well is the context and the period of when it was made, how it was made, the look it kind of has. And I think this film's a greatly missed opportunity because as we talked about when we originally reviewed Death Wish, the overarching like moral plot and conundrum of is vigilantism right? Is, you know, is use, you know, guns and force. Is it necessary? Should it be done? It does lean more towards yes, but it, there is more gray area, and yeah, there, and the original book was against vigilantism. So, but I mean, there's so as we said when we did that review, that still applies today with all that's going on. 
And this movie doesn't really address that. It does it in a totally haphazard, slapstick, flippant manner is the best I could say. Like, it's very flippant to it. Like, it's kind of like, oh, it's just there. Yeah, and surprisingly, I would say that the original Death Wish maybe was even a little bit more tactful in the way that it it addressed these issues because um, it did use, like, the media forms as... A way to kind of address like both sides of the spectrum in in the public of like some people saying like well you know I think he's doing a good job other people saying you know we really can't have some guy like this just going around shooting people it's not really you know appropriate um, and they had what I would consider to be again speaking contextually the important media forms like television news broadcasts and radio broadcasts and and now um in this film they kind of bring that up again but it it's in a less relevant manner because as we talked about as when we got out of the uh it's just morning drive host yeah it's it's, they they took the robocop thing of like hey remember how like the re- how like in the remake of robocop they had samuel L. jackson doing these like fox news style-esque like um, exposés that was like, you know, supposed to be like a shot at Fox News, which, as we commented on that review, was like, yeah, you're a little late, to the, you know, on that satire. Good job for you. But that's better done with this because in... Because at least in RoboCop, one, they had bits like that in the original. Mm-hmm. So and it, it makes sense. And it was a little bit... It was more tactfully done in RoboCop. Here, it's literally just... They have two morning uh, drive hosts um, from Chicago. One of them, Sway, and he's got, like, more of the black perspective, and he's like, is this vigilante good? Yes or no? What do you guys think? And then they got the uh, white trash mad cow guy. And like, All right, is the vigilante good? I don't know. Well, I think he's good. What do you say? And that's it. That's So every time, like, something happens... Like Paul, uh, Bruce Willis goes off and kills somebody. The next scene, it's morning time. We gotta, he- you know, have that put in there. The problem is, it has no bearing on the what's going on in the film because it's just tacked on there, and it, it adds nothing to the film. And it's not even really trying to um, force the viewer to question things because, as we'll talk about, the Death like a- Wish really has a resounding answer to to those questions. Like, there's no like leeway there there's no gray area when you end the film and you're supposed to come out thinking like hmm, what you know i'm not really sure how to take that or i i'm i'm thinking hard about the message that this conveyed and i'm really torn between two areas there's there's no you know there's no choice there you're supposed to come to a a pretty standard conclusion that pretty much everybody could draw from watching this film. Oh, like that too. Um, going off the thing, the problem with using morning drive talk show hosts is like the media talking about it is, as I told you, it's the problem with, excuse me, like drive time, um, talk, uh, radio talk shows. I think outside of sports, I think it works better with sports. You can't really do it. I think with, um, news and current events and political issues because you can't have a real dialogue on there because the whole point of that is to be like, well, here's this issue. Here's my opinion on it. Here's my co-host's opinion on it. Let's take some callers. And the, somebody calls, and then when they call, you literally give them like three seconds and then you cut them off and yeah. you either validate what they said or shoot them down and you move on. 
There's, you know, there's, there's no, no like, room for... you don't hold that per put that one person on there and have like a 20 minute intellectual discussion on like, like, oh, so this is the merits that you bring up and this is the merits. No, that's like what a podcast or um, talking point shows are. Well, the more for. relevant scenario would probably have been some sort of internet focus, so, uh, like a more well, they tried technologically to... based uh, system of dialogues. And it's really not done well in this film, which pretty much, I mean, seems like it dates it. And then also, I, I would just say that it doesn't really understand the context of a 20, well, we'll say 2017, because it really was meant for 2017, a 2017 to 2018 film of really missing the point of a lot of like matters now, um, of, of a lot of like contemporary issues. I, I would say that, you know, Death Wish trying to remake it for a time period now is though they share a lot of the same ideas and we have the same sort of problems now as we did then they have shifted and they're not really the same problems that we can just like slap into a new film and say like, well, there's, it's the same thing. It's not, I mean, it really would have done, uh, it would have been better off if Eli Roth had really taken some of the ideas from death wish and then translated them to a film that really sits well within contemporary issues. And it, it it really just feels like he took a lot of what was in the original Death Wish and transplanted it into modern day. And watered it. Yeah, and watered, watered it, it down. Terribly. Yeah. I mean, at least with the, um, the original, with it taking place in New York City, and, you know, throughout the 70s, New York City was a shithole. And you had rampant crime and, you know, muggings and beatings. Here it's just... Like in Chicago, yeah, there's a lot of which this one takes the new one takes place in. There's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a high murder rate there now, but it's not because it's just random cr criminal activity, just like random right. beating. Like it's there's like gang related. Does Paul Kersey fight a gang in this movie? I mean, not really. Nope. No, no, he doesn't. In fact, he the three muggers that raped and beat his wife and daughter in this one, um, they're just three guys that randomly got together to do a burglary. Well, there's no rape in this. It's another way they water down the exploitative elements of the original. Well, it's seeing as it's 2018 now, Ryan. Uh, the fact the one guy, you know, did a finger walk <laughs> on this, you know, his daughter's legs without consent. True. Rape. True. Very questionable. Um, let's uh, let's take a break from uh, talking about uh, Death Wish for a second. I don't want to get too far into it, into our intro. Uh, and let's just talk about some of the beer that we got today. Um, first, we'll just preface this by saying that uh, between last episode and this episode, we did go to the Saratoga Beer Fest, which we pretty much do every year. Um, always a lot of fun. Had a lot of different beers. Uh, I think I had about like 15 different beers that I've not had previously. Um, what would you say was the primary example of beer that was at the show this year? Some kind of IPA. I would like, probably like, say that the main example <laughs> would be the New England style IPA. I only saw like two of them. I But I, they, it seems like they're trying to push that more and more. Like, not only is it an IPA... It's a, it's a New England IPA. It's a I don't see. I don't really see the the contextual difference between them. Uh, an IPA is an IPA. I don't really know that we need to 
categorize every single location that an IPA could be coming out of. When are we getting like the Nebraska IPA? Right, yeah, yeah. The the Midwestern IPA. <laughs> the Iowa IPA. I know. Yeah, I just don't see the need to say like, well, specifically this one is a New England because it has like this one hop in it that makes well, it a New England style IPA. I was more upset that Yingling was there. It's a craft beer, you know, summit and Yingling's there. Um few that few that like, were there that aren't really a craft brewery. And I mean, I'm fine with Jenny being there, and not just because I like Genesee, but they actually had the Pilot Batch series line. Which even though, is their their style of, like, what you would consider craft. Yeah. yeah um, sure. But, I mean, which they didn't have any there, which I think is, you know, a crime. It is. They did have their Jenny Bach, but, and I did get it because I love the Bach, but... Um, Yingling doesn't re- doesn't do that though. They don't have. I mean, they've tried to like an Oktoberfest and a summer wheat, but I wouldn't consider that you know being like uh, right, like trying like branching out and trying craft beer things. It's no, just I wouldn't either. I would say that probably, um, surprisingly, Ghost was well represented there. Um, a lot of IPAs. Uh, and quite a few stouts as well, some heavy stouts. I had a 16% uh, strong ale to end my session, which was yeah, I took a sip of fucking crazy. Um, uh, I was more looking at Ricky Bobby. Yeah. Yes. A guy with- Dig a Night Star, Ricky Bobby was in the house. Yeah, there was a guy there dressed up in, in full regalia. He actually did kind of look like Will Ferrell, too. He was pretty good. I, I gotta say, as a cosplay he was pretty good i don't really know the the uh meaning behind like why specifically they picked why not? ricky bobby well, why not to be because would like you rather him be jack 15 ja- years too late i, I know guess, but, but, but would you rather him be jackie moon from semi-pro who no one likes semi-pro no i don't really that like one semi-pro. will ferrell's finest people no. like talladega nights talladega nights is fun true so i mean um so yeah it was a good time though Red yeah. Robin. I, I didn't. I didn't. Um. Actually, this year I made sure not to really drink as much. I was kind of a lot lower key. I was like the, the only sober one at the end. That's true. You. I mean, I wasn't sober. Um. Your wife wasn't. Nope. Yelling for more fries at Red Robin. It's great. But uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. Had a good time. Uh, I would like to do the summer session they have coming up. Uh, I'd like to do as many as possible, actually. Oh yeah, me too. But it's it's always a lot of fun to that's try. Why I got switched weekend. Try new days. things. Yeah, mm. but, uh, but yeah, no, like I, yeah, I'll, I like I said, I think because I looked at the beer list actually for the first time. I, I usually don't ever look at it when we go because I I want to be surprised when I go there. I looked at it before we went because they had the whole thing at post and not just the breweries that would be there, but the beer that they would be bringing there. And I I was pretty disappointed actually. I thought it was fine. I it's pretty much what I expected, but I know, but like at least like the years prior, they had like more like special things going on. Here it was really, it was like outside the New England IPA from Sam's, which I did want to try, but they brought back the Chai IPA for the second or third year in a row, which I don't know why because I don't know where you can get it. Can you only get it at the brewery? 
I don't know, because I've never seen it before in, like, a bottle or a can. I don't know. So, I mean, like, the fact that they, like, brought that back, it's like, come on, you can, in Cold Snap, it's like, everyone's had fucking Cold Snap. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I do agree that, you know, when the breweries decide to bring, like, really un, you know, un, like, I would say conventional brews, it's kind of defeats the purpose. And now, why would you, you know, in in an area like this, that has Sam Adams like readily available. Why would you bring the most common beer that you could get at this? Well, time like the same day? thing too. Like even though I love Alma Gang, they brought like stuff that they yeah, like the smoked porter. And yeah, I would have liked to have seen like Sam Adams bring something that you just really never get around, like the Boston um, Lager, or I mean, I'm sorry, Boston, the Boston Ale. Yeah, because I've been uh, wanting to try that the, for years. Or the uh, <laughs> the red um, the red brick ale or whatever. Like, why can't you get the Boston Ale around here? Why is they it only-, only sell it around Boston area and Sam Adams at the brewery? And it's one of their staple beers, though. Like when you go onto their website, it's one of their flagship beers. Yeah. So why is it not? Yeah, I have been wanting to try it forever. Cause I'm like, I wonder what it takes. You know what it's like. Right, and it's it, that that is frustrating. Cause yeah, you would expect them to bring something like really interesting like that, or the red brick ale, which is only again available at Sam Adams, which I just randomly happen to have at the Big E. So like those, you just can't get. And uh, you know, for them to bring cold snaps, kind of like a slap in the face. Like and not only that too, I f- felt like a lot more people this year didn't even have kegs. It was, right, it was like had, a cooler with a growler in it, or like, you know, yeah, there like were like a, a couple bottles or cans, or like, cans or like, bottles. Like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, a little laziness on their on their part as well, like not even shipping out a keg. And uh, the one beer I had was significantly flat too. I can't remember who it was now at this point, but I think it was Victory. Uh, yeah, one of them. It was like some, it was an IPA. I remember. I think it was either like Victory a, or Rogue. It, one of the, that was Rogue. Rogue. Yeah, it was right. It was Rogue. And they had a significantly flat IPA. It tasted like a green IPA. And, uh, you know, not impressed with that. I don't know Probably just like what happened there, but up. yeah. Yeah, interesting. It'd be a shame if, like, Adirondack, which Adirondack did have their peanut butter porter there, which I was glad because I've been wanting to try that, but I haven't pulled the trigger on it because it's like, I don't know how I think about how, I don't know how I feel about that. And I'm glad they had that there because I tried it, and it was really good. I would buy a six-pack of that. So that was, you know. That's one of the highlights for me. But other than that, like I said, for the most part, a lot of this stuff there, like Dogfish had had like the same shit they had every year, like the 90-minute IPA, and it's like, please, just... Maybe you've just had too much beer at this point. Probably. That's pro- <laughs> probably why I don't... Like, I just look... However, we do have a special one to talk about today on the show. Uh, it's one that I've been holding on to for a while. Uh I randomly found, and it was not really the season for it, but I randomly found... No, it's uh, not. Mil- it, no, it's not. It is not at all. Millhouse Brewing Company's um, Cucumber Blessings Cream Ale. Uh, they're out of Poughkeepsie, New York, and I've never really heard of them before, but I do think I've had a couple. I think I've had this cucumber and then a stout that they make. Um, this is the first. I've never heard of them before. This this is... It really stuck out to me, even though, again, like I said, it's not really the season for this. Um, because I like cream ales and as does Martin and, um, I want, I wanted to try something a little bit different because generally if I'm going to try anything different, it's going to be just like a different type of IPA. It's not really (laughs) that out of the box. So a cucumber cream ale sounded very interesting to me. I've experimented before. I've had a coconut cream ale. I'm not a big fan of coconut, so it didn't really do much for me. Um, but I wanted to see what a cucumber cream ale would be like. 
I gotta admit, I'm also not a huge fan of cucumbers, so really, I don't know how smart of a idea it is to go out and get a cucumber beer if you don't really love cucumber. Um, but this Millhouse Brewing Cucumber Blessings uh, is pretty good, despite my hesitancy to like cucumber, and it's very heavy on the cucumber. Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. I am not a cucumber fan as well. Um, it's definitely one of those uh, fruit vegetables where you either love it or you hate it. There's no in between between it uh, for a cucumber. It's kind of like uh, cauliflower, broccoli. You either love it or you don't fucking like it at all. And I don't like cucumber at all. I think it's just it's weird. It's like this weird watery sweetness. I just um like cucumber in general. Yeah, re- yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, the I, reason I, I don't really like cucumber is just because I feel like I'm not really eating anything. Yeah, but I, 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 uh, celery's like that, and yeah, I love celery. I don't love celery either. Eh? I don't like those watery uh, vegetables. That but are celery's really... not sweet, though. It's literally just like a, you're eating fiber that's like a yeah. crunch. Yeah, little exactly. Little... It just doesn't do anything for me. It's that's my sweet, biggest it's, thing. It's the sweetness of cucumber that I don't like. That's why I love pickles, even though because even though I'm not the biggest like vinegar fan. It's just like. Pickling a cucumber is like brilliant. Dill pickles are amazing. Well, I will say that I don't not like cucumbers. I don't not like them. I just have, I would say I have a very like limited opinion on them. I really, I don't care either way. Put them in my salad. Don't put them in my salad. Oh, no, I'm no. not going to be sad either No, way. I'll be angry. Oh, okay. like, if right, I go to like right. Subway and like, like, oh, and keep with the green peppers on and they put like slices of cucumber on I'd be like, what are you doing? Throw that, th- take this sub, throw it out. We have to start from scratch. You've tainted... Like I and I don't you and as Ryan really knows because um yesterday the at Starbucks they got my order wrong. I often don't correct them and have it fixed. I'll just be like oh, whatever. But if you put cucumber on something, I no, it's an, I will point that out and have that corrected. Which then surprises me because you were not that uh you know disgusted with the cucumber cream ale, which I had assumed <laughs> you would be. I wasn't at the first sip I had of it. I didn't care for it because mm-hmm. it you're right it is very it has a very forward cucumber taste it's sweet tastes literally like it almost does taste literally like you're biting into like a fresh sliced cucumber um and then it has like the cream ale smoothness and body and deliciousness to it but you have to like get through like four seconds on your pile of cucumber and then like up a little cream ale as more, the more I was drinking it, though, the more I was able to, like, my taste buds to kind of adjust to the cucumber and be like, and just be like, okay, yeah, I like, it's, I'm getting used to this cucumber. Okay, yeah. All right, it's fine. Yeah. I mean- All right, yeah, like, okay, I can, I can appreciate this, uh, cream ale. And I do think, I do think it's an interesting mix. I do think it is a smart one because it does say on there, like, crisp, refreshing, Meant, you know, for, like, summer days. Yeah, absolutely. This would be a good, like, if you like cucumber and, cr- and or cream ales, this would be a good refreshing beer. Like, I would want one of these over, like, a session IPA on a hot fucking summer day. Um, problem is I wouldn't go for that because I'd rather have the session IPA because at least I like IPAs. Not the biggest cucumber fan. Uh, but I do, I do see what they were going for. I appreciate the effort because it is... Kind of like when Genesee did the orange honey cream ale, which I loved because it tastes like a creamsicle. It was delicious, and I saw that as a great refreshing beer to have on a summer day. 
So I, I, I could, you know, like I said, I can see what they're going for with this. Um, it's not really my taste. The only other cucumber beer I had was like a Magic Hat one, which was like in a summer pack in like 2012 when I was uh, up in Oswego um, visiting a college friend. And I was like, yeah, that tastes like dog shit. I can't remember what it was called. I think it was like a cucumber hibiscus. Mm-hmm. Is is bad. I mean, yeah, I would say that I I wouldn't go out of my way to get this cucumber blessings because, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of cucumber. But I think if you do like cucumber, you would really enjoy this because it does it is executed really well. And you know, even though it's refreshing, it is. It really is refreshing. It's um, it's not too watery. You know, for, for what you would expect from cucumber, it just has the flavoring without you know over you know watering down the beer. And I think it's a really solid execution if you like cucumber beer or if you even like cucumber in general. I'm just not a huge fan of it. So I, I wouldn't pick it. I wouldn't probably order it at a, at a bar. But getting a four-pack as an experiment, was I'm not upset about. I, I, I think it's worth it just to try it and to see something new within the beer world. I'm all for experimentation. I'd like to see beers like this that really go out of their way to try something new rather than just tacking on as i like to say a color to an ipa um speaking of which yeah speaking of which we are <laughs> drinking now the sierra nevada Flipside red ipa uh which is a, i would say a very very standard red ipa that even pretty much just borders on regular ipa the um, red flavor the red caramel maltiness to it is uh very subdued i would disagree with you I think I'm not. I don't think it's the molten caramel on it is subdued. I don't think it's overpowering either. I think it's actually just the right amount. Mm. Um, I think because a lot of red IPAs I've had before have been really not only very hoppy, but also very like malt forward too. So you get like the extremes of both because they can't really figure out how to quite balance it. Yeah. And I think the flip side actually does a decent job of being malty, having a nice caramel taste to it, and then like a nice hoppy finish. And I think for one of the Sierra Nevada's IPAs, it's actually kind of a little bit milder on the hops than a lot of their other IPAs. It's more kind of like their pale ale, I'd say, when it um with like the hop characteristic of it. And I think it makes for a pretty bit decent balanced beer. Um that being said, I'm also not the biggest red IPA fan. It's just not really a style that I re- like go for. I know it's like aimed, especially with like the design on this, like it's supposed to be like a nice fall beer. It, it's just really not like, especially in the fall, it's not like something I would go for. Yeah, I think even because like, because I'm like in the fall, I want me my goddamn Marzins and Oktoberfest. Let's you know. Well, I think they're even trying to mimic like the torpedo beer a little bit, like the this the labeling on the torpedo. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, I think this is pretty good. I do like the all of the Sierra Nevada in this new uh, hot pack, the the four hot pack of uh, the flip side red IPA. The all um, the I can't remember what it's if it's called like No More Grounds or something like that. It's the coffee IPA. Um, the the No Good, No as in K N O W IPA, and their um. I can't Nooner. remember. Yeah, no, no. It's not a Nooner. No. Are you sure something? No, because it's another IPA, but I I don't recall. Oh, it's the Tropical Torpedo. That's what it is. Um, That's also in that pack. I like that pack quite a bit. Um, I had, I pounded three of them on Saturday. 
from that pack. And uh, two of them are the coffee IPAs. And uh, I like that pack. So. Start your morning off with them, wake up and go, get my coffee and beer. <laughs> That's right, yeah. No, I drank them because uh, a friend of mine had them and he didn't. He doesn't like coffee IPAs, so. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, it's a it's an acquired taste for sure. You can like IPA, you can like coffee. That doesn't mean that you're gonna. I like know, them no, together. I agree because we've said before as we've reviewed a couple. It's a odd odd couple, but we uh, we both like it. Ah, uh, yeah, I I am a fan. I I like the the way they pair together, like a two different styles of bitterness coming together. It's great. It's like me and you together. Two different styles of bitter. Bitter at the world. Together. That's why you listen to Blood and Black Crown Podcast. Mm. <laughs> Alright, with that said, let's move on to getting into Death Wish. Because I do really want to get into it. And I have been brewing on it ever since yesterday night when we saw it. I really think it, we sh- should always say Eli Roth's Death Wish. Eli Roth's Death Wish. I don't want this to be really, confused with Michael Winters. L- label it. Li- <laughs> lather it on there. I'm surprised Eli they Roth's didn't put his, his name on there. For such a shitty filmmaker... He's like one of those guys that constantly gets like Eli, Eli Roth presents or yeah. something like that. Well, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like Brett Ratner, like a Brett Ratner film. Like, it's well, like, you know what happened really was like when Hostel came out, Quentin Tarantino was really all about it. So it was Quentin Tarantino presents Hostel, and then from there, Eli Roth had kind of become like a household name. I know, but it's weird because he's one, he's not a good filmmaker, and two, he hasn't fucking really done that many films to begin with. Yeah, I mean, you can really put them on the, on the on your hand. You can name them all off: Cabin Fever, Hostel, Hostel Two, um, uh, Death Wish, The Green Inferno, and I probably miss. I think I'm missing one, but um, I kind of like. I used to. I used to be into Thanks- Eli Roth. Thanksgiving. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that that was not really that doesn't count because it's just short. Well, I know. I'm not. I don't count that one, even though a lot of people believe that's his best work. <laughs> is the the very short. I might I trailer. Would, I would probably agree with that. But uh, I I gotta say, like when I first saw Eli Roth, I thought he had he really did have promise. Like Cabin Fever, I still think is a pretty good film. Uh, all around, a pretty good film, even though it does suffer from the dreaded faggot. In that film, which they then cut out of like the new remake that they made, um, that that in itself just is kind of grating. Now that you hear, it's like, oh, they really suffered from like the early OOs, like lingo. That that sucks. But other than that, I do really like Cabin Fever. Um, from there, I I liked Hostel a lot. I liked it a lot when I was younger because I thought it was edgy and I thought it was. You know, Cute. you know, it was torture porn, and I was Never like, saw I'm, it. "I'm into it. I can stomach the eye cutting scene." Um, I love, you know. Now looking back on it, it's not really that great of a film. It's really just gore for the sake of it. it re- nothing really happens in that film besides gore, and perhaps uh, the viewer coming to terms with the fact that like everyone around them could possibly be sadistic. I mean, that's really that's really the scope of Hostel, and then even more so Hostel Two, which really just kind of hammers down those themes even more with a female cast rather than a male cast. So ostensibly no difference. Yeah. I I never saw, uh, I did not see the green inferno. Um, I've heard that it is a, uh, like really, um, based off of some of Eli Roth's favorites, like cannibal Holocaust, which I gotta say, if you're saying cannibal Holocaust is one of your favorite movies 
I, I don't trust your judgment anyway because there. I, while I think every horror fan should really see Cannibal Holocaust at least once, I was to say it's your favorite movie. To say that like watching a bunch of people murder animals for fun, like for the film on screen and suffer through it, like the one chick throws up legitimately on camera because they cut off a turtle's shell. I mean, it's not really a fun film. Like, I wouldn't say I would set out and watch Kino Holocaust and be like, well, that was entertaining. It's more so you see it because you have to, like, kind of excruciatingly get through it and be like, it's historic. It's a morbid curiosity. Yeah, really, basically it is. And it wasn't... You know, it, it it I wouldn't say I would say it's important to the cannibal film franchise. I wouldn't say that it's a film that I would, you know, herald as being like a great film. Uh part of the Mondo documentary style? Sure. Important? Yes. A great film that you would herald and like watch over and over again? No. I, I would I unless you have a sadistic streak, I, I wouldn't say so. Isn't it Harold? Yeah, I mean you can say you're right, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced like Harold. Like you're saying Harold over very like, I am saying that. Like yeah. <sighs> on location. You know, he actually that would fit Geraldo at the time when he was doing mm-hmm. like those uh like the Mondo like hurricane documentary things. I was thinking more like the I remember in health class in high school, um uh, we had I don't know if you watched it. Um but we had to watch like one of the uh Geraldo like in like the nineteen seventies sanitarium. And like interviewing how like like it's like some place in upstate New York too I can't remember, but it was like him like you know showing like the appalling conditions in like the, uh, as- asylum, and is you know, yeah no I I mean I I definitely think that which like I just like thinking of can which I haven't se- I actually never seen Cannibal Holocaust it's not really anything that I've ever really like I want to sit uh, I've heard of it I know about it like and all that and like like heard a bunch of people talk about it and review it it's just never anything i've really bothered to sit down and watch it's like that doesn't sound like i ha- would want to sit down and spend my time on this but i can from what i've seen of it like the clips and the review i could see her all though showing up and like this you know yeah yeah absolutely no i would I, you know and that seems like for when we're talking about death wish it seems like we're really far off the beaten path from talking about death wish when we get from Hannibal, cannibal holocaust slash Eli Ross, The Green Inferno, which is basically his um, homage to Candle Holocaust, to Death Wish. But it really does factor in because we know that Eli Roth has a fascination with a lot of these films from the 70s that really inspired him. Uh, in the same way that Quentin Tarantino has those same inspirations but from he, certain films. But Tarantino's more just all over the place. No, it's true. He's done, he's, he's done Spaghetti Western with Django. He's done, you know, uh, heist film in Reservoir Dogs. He he's you know uh, black exploitation and Jackie Brown. He's done a martial arts with the Kill Bills film. Yeah, so he's all over the place. Grant he does, and you know, exploitation with Grindhouse. Um, well, I'm just trying to to qualify the 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 way that we're getting from Cannibal Holocaust and the Green Inferno to Eli Roth's Death Wish because. Death Wish isn't really that far out of the scope of what Eli Roth would do as as in terms of like a 70s vigilante film really steeped in the exploitative exploitative elements that he's really fond of and that we've seen throughout most of his other works. So it kind of makes sense for Eli Roth to take on a Death Wish remake. But at the, at the same time it, it one this film isn't exploitative. 
at all. In fact, this no, is no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not no, trying to say that it no, is. No, but no, I'm, but let me let me let me preface this. So, like, I could see Eli Roth if they had to like pick a director to do Death Wish. I could see him being one of them. The other one, unfortunately, being like Zack Snyder. Uh, which I'm, you know, in hindsight, it might be better that we got Eli Roth. Right. But so, but just prefacing this. But so yeah, I do know he Eli Roth, big fan of like seventies exploitative genre. The problem is the original Death Wish is not an exploitative film. I don't care what people say; it's not. Just because you get to see Jeff Goldblum's ass and him raping a woman doesn't mean it's an exploitive film. What about the original Death Wish is exploitive besides the fact that it's violent? And like I said, the. Just because it was violent, gory, and over the top for the time doesn't mean it's an exploitative film. It's a vigilante film. Taxi Driver has those same goddamn elements. Anyone saying Scorsese did an exploitative film? No, he did a vigilante film. I think it's it's different because again, the whole marketing behind this new film from the trailers and the posters. Like the one like um, ticket that we found in the bathroom that was like a size of like a postcard. It's like they're going for the exploitive vibe. Like, oh, his Death Wish, the exploitive film. Which the, the original Death Wish isn't. Like I said, it's not an I, exploitive film. And not only that, this film is not exploitative. I don't want to get too far into it, but I think that's splitting hairs with the vigilante exploitative element. I, it's not really that important to decipher between them. I, I would say that you could, in some sense, say a vigilante film is an exploitative film when it has certain elements to it, like Death Wish has. It doesn't really matter. But I do agree, and I'm not saying that Eli Roth's Death Wish does have those exploitative elements. I'm saying that I think he was inspired by them, and it doesn't... What I was, my point was getting at was that it doesn't translate to 2018's Death Wish. Well, I guess I... I still, like I said, I don't think it's splitting hairs because I think it's you're totally miscasting the the films. Then I know, but we are we already talked about that part of it. Death Wish, the original Death Wish. We want to talk about the new Death Wish. We want to get into the nitty gritty about this Death Wish. I know, but like at the same time, if you're gonna talk, like say he's an exploitative filmmaker, then why is this film not exploitative? Why is it? neutered well let's talk yeah let's talk about that because it really is neutered and that's really the point that i wanted to drive through to get to is that you know either roth might have been the a good person to direct this film but ultimately this 2018's death which as a remake gets neutered beyond comprehension from the original film one the script is terrible i think yes i think before you get into the whole film itself yeah i talk about the script for this yeah i mean i think that the screenplay itself um by joe carnahan is very confused on what it wants out of death wish because it almost paints things in a very like a very good and evil sort of idea and then tries to shore up those elements by saying well maybe not everything is but it never comes to that like agreement of like 
you know, what's good, what's bad, what's in between. It's mostly just good or evil, and, and then you, you kind of go from there. Well, I think more than just the moral... Di- Before you can even get to the whole moral dichotomy between is vigilantism right and wrong, um... You have the opening, which of the is film. terrible. It's it's Elite, in the original film. How's the film shot with his partner? Hang on, hang on, like we're gonna we're gonna get there. I thought I was watching. That'd be great. Yeah, no, <laughs> that that does take place in Chicago, so that would fit. But um, but you know, Charles Bronson and his wife on vacation in Hawaii and spending quality time together, and you know, so it's like you get this, you know. And then when he gets back from his vacation, he's at work and his, you know, co-worker's like, Hey, welcome back to work. There's more rape and murder going on. But you know, you won't do anything about it. You're a bleeding heart liberal. Like, at least, though, you could argue Charles Bronson is somewhat of a wooden actor. Also around, it's more believable in how they kind of interact. Hillis and Elizabeth Shue are fucking terrible. And not only that, just like... People you can't really, unless you're in the original Death Wish, Bronson's well off because he's an architect. And and he's seem out of touch. He, at least he's got like an apartment. It's in this fucking fancy ass house. And like, yeah, I think you know, that's the biggest thing that stands out at the forefront. Like, you know, like, oh, our daughter's going to college. Like, oh, yep. Wow. What a. What a miles! Isn't this happy? So cheesy and ham-fisted opening to the film, you know, in that in the sense that Eli Roth really, uh, not not only just making him out to be like sort of a yuppie character with this nice house, the well-to-do surgeon who saves people's lives on a daily basis. Uh, they put him in. The biggest thing is that the opening opens with like a Beach Boys song playing in the background. It's like if that fight, you know, like this this guy's not gonna know how to fight. He he's just a guy who you know. In home on the couch with his family, eating deep dish pizza because if you didn't know you're in Chicago, there's fucking deep. Really except sell that idea. Except at the end, <laughs> they really want to sell that idea of like, look at the inter- you know uh, the bad things in the world. He yes, he is a surgeon. Is it, he say, deals is, with gunshots. Say, but I I just think that the the you know Eli Roth the, by painting that picture is there's nowhere to go besides you know down from there. You mean to tell me that there isn't some kind of neighborhood watch and, like, police patrol constantly around looking for... And so, uh, that's what I'm saying. So, so how are all these burglaries apparently happening? Apparently, they're all... premise of how the his house gets broken into is deep dish pizza with Vincent D'Onofrio and his daughter. And the sir, valet service. Valet service. And poor, amazing. poor Miguel, the... <laughs> M was yeah because he because MJ because yeah. he had because that's that's a, recur- that's a recurring theme too throughout this MJ reference or, or anything about bl- black people or <laughs> basketball Michael Jordan hey guy he it is Miguel by the way <laughs> you're not uh, being <laughs> yeah you know he gets like after hearing like like oh that these how are wealthy they are which by the way restaurant would you go to would have fucking va- would you go to like Papa John's <laughs> and like. You know? Have them pick me to park your car? Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, and, well, so, and also he's driving, like, a $30,000 BMW. Oh, takes, you know, hits home on, like, the GPS, takes a picture of it, so, like, him, you know. But, again, at the same time, like, it's kind of, like, a stretch to, like, the context, at least in this movie, of what's going on in Chicago. Being shot after hearing the stereotypical morning drive talk about in the original death wish you get to see and it's 
hammered in right up ridiculously. Rape is up ridiculously. Murders, muggings, it's all up. And you get to see it. And then you stalk her, stalk her and like then get her address and then go to her house, you know, claiming to bring to burglarized rape and spray paint and commit murder. So it, like it all makes sense. And again, it makes sense when you think about New York City in the 70s because it was a shithole. And so, like, the parallel here doesn't really work as well because it's not, like, expounded upon. Like, when I think when I think Chicago now, like, yeah, I do know it, it does have one of the higher murder rates in the United States. But I don't think instantly, like, it's a shithole. It's falling apart. I think Deep Dish Pizza, the Cubs, Chicago-style hot dogs, and old-style beer because of better call salt. Yeah, but, and I, I think, too, that... So, they didn't... So... Going back to like how we were talking about like the screenplay and how it's written, like they could have used more to actually elaborate and show, especially in the beginning before what happens to Bruce Willis as Paul Kersey and what you know makes him want to become a vigilante. Show Chicago falling apart, right? You know, yeah, make, it be, make it be, make it be, make it be the Detroit of the eighties. You know, like they make actually, it. I mean, they try to do that like actually um, post murder because then Bruce Willis's character Paul is going into, like, the police precinct, played, you know, and, and, and meeting up with his uh, detectives, which played by Dean Norris. Um, and he, there sh- it shows, like, a whole billboard of, like, all of these sticky notes of people that haven't been taken time, down. And most of them are gangbangers. And but it no, doesn't even apply. Yeah, but not, not only that, though, but why, why would... You mean to tell me Dean Norris's precinct covers... So, you know, yeah. suburbia and, like, part of... Like, downtown Chicago? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, okay. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it's it w- only in one area. It's, like, northwestern Chicago. So, it make, yeah, it makes it makes no sense. Like, how, like... Yeah, like, they wouldn't... I, if they have that many open cases, then they really need to get, you know, somebody else in there. Because Dean Norris is not doing a good job, <laughs> apparently. He is a very inept police officer. And that's sort of the thing that... Uh, Death Wish is going for is two is the police are inept. Police are inept, and but I gotta I gotta say that the film doesn't really come across as such because it really does look like Dean Norris is doing the best he can. They don't have a lot to go on. Relatively, I mean, there isn't that much for them to do in terms of an investigation, well, and they're doing their best they the best they can, and they're hoping that. Something does pop up. Well, see, that's the see that's where the interesting talk should be had. Yeah, the a lot of people like to say, and this is just a generalization, so don't you know? I'm not saying any person specifically, but you hear often people say, "I'm for the law, blue lives matter, follow you know the rule of law, the Constitution, all that." But when it comes down, when you want results. People want to take every fucking shortcut to get there. Right. You know, so, like, you may believe in all that, but if, like, say, like, a murder happens, like, with it, like, in the family, or outside, or, like, somebody you know, or, like, it just strikes your, you know, your ire, they're like, no, like, and, like, we gotta figure it out and do, you know. Well, I, I'll, but, it's, and, that's, and that's where the interesting talk should be had, because it's like, you want... You know, like, you, people say they want, you know, to be protected in the law and all that. But at the same time, it's a process. It takes time. Yeah. It, you know, it's and it's not perfect either, but it's better than anarchy, which 
is what vigilantism well, I mean, goes, I, yeah, and goes I to. And that's, again, that's where the interesting conversation could be had in this movie and in general. Yeah, and, and there is no interesting conversation about it. There is no conversation, period. It's Bruce Willis looking mopey, barely doing anything in this film, very stoic, very, you know, very much looking almost bored often. Even in, in the parts of the film that are try, trying to like emphasize like how cool it is to fucking have a gun and be doing a shooting and trying, you know, practicing your shooting. Bruce Willis looks bored. He looks downright bored as he's shooting in like a gun garage, shooting at a sign. He looks bored. And I find it funny too that a fucking brain, you know, goddamn surgeon isn't smart enough to figure out like, well, I'm encased in metal. I shouldn't fire a gun off. And, yeah. you know, like, oh, no, it's going to ricochet. Perhaps a ricochet might yeah. occur. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you, you mean to tell me this guy? Yeah. I know. But, uh, but like, in speaking from experience, I have had a relative murdered. I, they, did the police do a good job? Not really. Did I go out and find the guy that I thought did it and kill him? No. And did I ever harbor those thoughts at all? No. I realized that. The uh, criminal world is in, is uh, often, you know, in flux, and police don't often do a good job. And especially in our little town, they don't really have a lot of uh, expertise in murder. Well, anytime uh, there has been, you know, there's probably been a fuck up in a case. Well, but, not like that, but I mean, they've instantly gotten outside resources. Right? Like, remember? Yeah, like, exactly. Like a couple of years ago, when they found those bodies in the up on like Terrell Road. Yeah. Um, in the ditch, you know, they had the F- state, you know, it wasn't local police, state, I mean, great, we have a trooper barracks around here, but the troopers and they had FBI investigators instantly up there to, yeah, yeah, you know, handle it, it. it, so, I mean, great, it ended up being like a drug overdose on bath salts, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but I, but I think, like, the film takes a really, um, a, a like a very blunt depiction of police that they're inept and that they're not really doing their job and not getting things done and they're not getting results but it really boils it down to a very simplistic level it doesn't show any of like the behind the scenes really it just shows them not even really knowing how to ask questions of their suspects well not only that i mean i don't think i think again like you get they are like dean norse is trying and wants to do but again it's also a matter of like procedure and then resources like we have to hope that maybe the dna that we got doesn't match but maybe we'll find someone down the road that it matches be able to at least in the original death wish it makes sense why are all these muggings and burglaries going on it's fucking new york city it's huge the police are understaffed don't have the resources and they they like literally show like, like look we there's literally nothing we have and there's nothing we can go off of. There's not, unfortunately, we probably will not get justice for you just because of the circumstances. And they like at least go into that to make it plausible, make sense. And then for Bronson to be like, well, fuck, if if they're not going to get it done, then I'll have to do something about it. Here, it's literally like, hey, look, they got the resources. They're trying. It's, but it's more like, can you wait a couple of months to maybe a couple of years to, you know, figure that riddle out? Which, from this movie, the riddle would have been solved even without vigilantes. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, the, there is the scene that um, 
obviously Paul Kersey's a, a surgeon and he is the ever elusive gunshot surgeon because that seems like all he ever does in Chicago's well, well, hospital. Well, again, because as they mentioned, the one thing they did was mention the beginning, like the murder rate in on the on their drive time. Yes, because every single murder a, comes from guns and goes to and goes to the. Kersey's hospital, whatever yeah. the hospital is, Chicago Northwest or whatever the hospital is. Yeah, no, but it, I. It's just funny how often they show him doing a like a gunshot wound extraction. It's like this man fucking doesn't do any other surgeries. That's it. He just yeah. takes out gu- bullets from people. It's like a cardiologist, except you know he specializes. He's, he's in... a spe- elusive gunshot guy. But uh, yeah, he actually ends up um, operating on. The guy, one of the guys in the robbery, and he he knows that it is because he sees the tattoo. And he realizes it, so he goes in and finds his phone and takes it, and uh, then figures out who else was part of the murder and you know all of the people that were linked to this this uh, robber. At the same time, though, all of that would have yeah, happened. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was, MJ, it was Miguel. Yeah, it was Miguel, so. and that, that literally would have happened regardless of whether he had taken his. Uh, vigilanteism is into his own hands because if he had just either said one, I recognize this guy, uh, he was my valet. And then that, that night I was fucking robbed or two, given the phone, he said, I found this cell phone here, cops here, mm-hmm. like take a look at it and like fi- figure out who else he's relinked to would have solved the case. But no, he doesn't do either of those things. He just decides I'm going to take this phone myself and I'll handle it myself. It doesn't make sense because every single time the police actually get a lead, would have a lead on this investigation, he kind of preempts them. He stonewalls. Exactly. So it's really Paul Kersey who is <sighs> getting in the way of this investigation because he's constantly badgering the police about it. And so, like I said in this film, Paul Kersey as a, as a person in this Death Wish film is causing so many more problems for the police that they now have to give up all of their cold cases that they're working on in order to figure out who this vigilante is that just keeps killing random people in the, in the city. And so instead of having them solve like all these little post-it notes that are on their, their bulletin boards and stuff like that, working on those cases, their boss is up their ass saying, get this fucking vigilante because he's, you know, he's causing a lot of mischief around town. So Paul Kersey not only has now stonewalled his own investigation for his family, he's caused the entire police staff to be like on high alert for a vigilante. So yeah, they're not getting anything done because he's causing more problems in in town. It doesn't, you know, when you think about it like that, at least in the original Death Wish, literally the police were doing nothing. Like it was clear they were not, they did not care. They were not doing anything. There was just random muggings and stabbings and shootings all over the city and well, it, it was kind of accepted. But it was well, just, when you think about it, too, if you think about it, again, in the 70s compared to now with, like, all the technology, it's like, they can only allocate so many patrolmen to, you know, patrol areas to try to stop this. Right. So, again, they're kind of, they're hand-strung and tied. It's like, yeah, it's terrible. It's like, but what the, we can't really do anything about it. We don't have, you know. Yeah. And there's never a moment in this film either where, where you feel like, like the police can't the, do or the, the police can't do it or they're not taking Paul Kersey seriously. The man's a fucking rich white guy. Of course they're going to take this murder seriously. <laughs> this is an important murder for them. They have all these rich people getting burglarized and robbed. They're going to have a problem on their hands. Like if, they, if this was just some guy, like homeless guy on the street who got robbed and, and murdered, they'd be like, mm, we'll get to it when we get to it. This is a rich white guy. They care. Dean Norris 
takes him back when he's checking in at the precinct when everybody's like, well, you're going to have to fill out all this paperwork. You're going to... No, this guy's a rich white surgeon. There's no way he's going to be sitting in the waiting room of the police precinct. So, again, that makes it hard to actually feel like you can relate to Paul Kersey. He's not a relatable character. Bruce Willis doesn't help that. No, he doesn't. Bruce Willis is completely wooden. He does not care. He's literally just... Does he have, like, gambling debts to pay off or something? I don't know. He he literally has no... (laughs) Like, real interest in anything that's going on in this film. He's a terrible doctor. He does... I mean, he's, like, right out of Death Wish 1 delivering the bad news to people, to Paul <laughs> Kersey in Death Wish 1, where he's just basically like, I'm sorry, she didn't make it. We, we tried our best. You know, good luck next time. That That's him as a doctor. Like, no bedside manner. And, yes, I guess that would be some ER doctors who just, like, really don't handle the public very well. But at the same time... I just think that Bruce Willis in Death Wish is just very bored, um, not really – he's phoning it in, really. I mean, I, I don't see that there's – terrible. Yeah. I, Absolutely. There's, granted, there's only one – I think there's only one person in here that's even kind of noteworthy, and that's Dean Norris. He actually seems like he's having a bit of fun in here. Yeah, no, because yeah. I think he realizes, like, hey, this is, you know, all right, yeah. Getting typecasted again. Isn't this great? So glad to be getting typecasted all the time as, you know, jolly cop guy. I would as say, as a, I would say as, both him and Kimberly uh, Elise as the yeah. uh, other detective that's working with him, uh, Leonore Jackson. They're both having a little bit of fun. And I think perhaps Kimberly Elise also kind of sees the humor in this film of, of that it's kind of stupid. And that, you know, she's she's got to roll with it. It's a paycheck. Well, as I was telling you, I was constantly, like, after every line, like, when Dean was like, hey, yeah, well, we're trying to, like... Hey, you want to try some Trader Bro? Yeah, yeah, you know, like, right, exactly. Having him from Breaking Bad, like, you want some Trader Bro? Try some Trader Bro. I, I don't want to. I want to branch away from that a little bit, but and also talk about what uh, what else makes a pretty fun and action packed vigilante film. Guys, there's not much that's in this plot. Do is put in some other moments where Bruce Willis is just kind of caught up in other vigilante acts, you know, leg, and he finds out there's this guy operating, you know, in the in the ghetto who's the drugs for him. That's all just kind of sh- pushed in here. It's shoved well, in yeah, here, like you know. After they uh, Bronson finds out the cops can't aren't going to really find his leads, and they just don't have the resources and they can't do it, and he becomes broken down. And he decides, you know, after going out to, I can't remember, was it Arizona or New Mexico with that one guy. Yeah. And, you know, talking about his bleeding heart values and then deciding he's going to take up a gun and start defending himself. He's not looking for specific targets when he starts, you know, yeah, being a vigilante. He's just looking for muggers, rapists on the streets, and he's killing them. Not only that, too, a lot of them those muggers and rapists and shit provoke him. He's out on the street. Like the one time, like he's out on the train, a guy comes up to him with a switchblade, cuts his paper and then he shoots him. Yeah. Is it vigilanteism? Not really. Cause I think if I had like, if I concealed carried and somebody came up to me and fucking, you know, pulled a switchblade on me, I'd probably pull out a gun and shoot them too. You know, like, so a lot of the, a lot of the killings in the original death wish, it's he's, looking for trouble but at the same time trouble's finding him and and that's also showing just how like bad the city has gotten yeah you know in this case 
he I, and, and and this one Bruce Willis is literally just walking out on the streets and like like looking to kill somebody being like yeah there's a dark person over there <laughs> yeah yeah really yeah it is um one of my favorites the only one I can think of off the top of my head where he's not really looking for trouble is his first kill with it's the mug, the mugging of the SUV. Yeah, that's kind of random. That just kind of happens. Well, other than that, like the ice cream man, like like he literally f- goes out and finds, um, goes out and finds him and shoots him. Which, by the way, I find it hard that this drug dealer and he's got like his posse around him too. And Bruce they just kind of run away. Yeah. He- <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's or, or maybe you're like I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> well, that that's definitely an enterprise bound to failure. If if all the guys <laughs> that are supposed to be protecting you just like run away after like one guy pulls out a gun, yeah, that you, you didn't just, have a solid business enterprise at that point. <laughs> that was a uh, that was poorly conceived. Should have had some more protection. Um, yeah, I, and I think um that this film really. It, it gets really it it's very boring in most aspects, and even so, from Eli Roth, I expected at least more gore, and, and this this film really doesn't have it until the end scenes that have a couple of those moments of Rothian, you know, torture porn. Play. There's there's two of them that are great. Uh, I would say the one is the uh, the very cheesy. When Bruce Willis has the mechanics car jacked up, um, and it's not even when he cuts his nerve and is burning him with brake fluid. Yeah. Um, that's not even really that bad. It's when he, he drops the car on, and that's like kind of like, all right, that's more like Eli Ross style. Yeah. And he gives that terrible fucking pun pun line of like, of like you're not going to kill me, are you? He's like, no. Jack is, and he yeah. pulls, you know, the chain that released the jack, and the car drops. That, and then when he shoots the one guy, and he falls off the stairs, and then lands on his side of his head and breaks his neck. Yeah, that that's just hilarious because obviously he's dead from getting shot, and then there's as he's falling down, it's just like insult to injury. He yeah, breaks his neck on the way down too, which that that I mean, it, I don't, it's gory, but I don't think it's like a like ugh, like cringe gory. It's more. Like, yeah, it's more like a, a laugh sort of thing, and I, I, I think it belies like what Death Wish really should be. It you know, shouldn't be funny. It should. It should. You know, it, this is almost like unless making, uh, unless you are gonna make it satirical. Yeah. Like in satirize, like if like I don't, I do think if they were going to go the route and be more like the book and be like more like. Isn't vigilantism stupid after you see all this? I think it would also that would also work better as gritty and realistic. Cause like you just, like see the carnage. Like don't you realize like this? I think that would work better. However, if you want to go the satire approach, I think that would work perfectly fine too. And there's a to lo- show to show like look how like again because they do have in this yeah. like a moment where Bruce Willis sees a commercial for like. Be prepared for any purpose, but when you buy a gun, you get this table, which also has a concealed pop-out. It's like, that's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, it, that is a satirical moment that's and almost that, like making fun of, like, look at these stupid gun commercials that don't even, you know, the, it, it it's basically selling sex and then also guns. Mm. And like, look at, both are really cool. I You know, men love real, all of those things. So, come out and buy a gun. And that is a satirical moment, and it almost seems like that's what Death Wish is trying to do. And how if you if you walked how, out right there, you might think Death Wish is a satirical movie about vigilantism. 
And not only that, too, because when he goes to first, when he goes to buy a gun, he finds out how piss easy it is. Like, oh, he's like, you know, she's like, oh, you fill out these forms, but they approve anyone. Then you got to take a course. Nobody ever fails. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like that's satirical because, again, and I'm not, I'm not a uh, I'm not a paralegal, so I don't know. But from what I understand, Chicago, one of uh, has pretty strict gun laws. That's why people, a lot of gun advocates say, you know, it has such a high murder rate is because they have strict gun laws and then only the bad guys have guns and the good guys can't protect themselves. And if that's the case, then this film's got it totally wrong because Bruce Willis can get a handgun like that. Whereas here in New York, it's a fucking rigmarole to get a goddamn handgun. It takes forever. You have to sign a shit ton, like if... If like I have a friend right now who's going through the process of getting his handgun, uh, his con- pistol permit, and you have to like fill out like in quadruplicate the form, send them to the sheriff, take a gun safety course before you even get your permit. Specify what gun you're going to buy and from where, and then like wait eight months, get a background check, and then once you get through all that, then you get your gun. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Bruce Willis again, if it's like I said, I'm not a paralegal, so I don't exactly know Chicago's gun laws. But like I said, if it's like how I think it is, strict, he's not getting a fucking pistol and uh, assault rifle overnight. Right. Yeah, and I, I just think like, you know, there were, there is some room here to be satirical. Um, and I think it would work a little bit better, too, with the film being like a little bit cheesy at the beginning. You know, the whole aspect of Bruce Willis confronting some asshole at a soccer game. Um, that, like it's that, all very like, you know, tongue in cheek. And not only like that too, like, and the fact it would help the fact too, uh, with how wooden him and like just about everyone else is. Yeah. Like, like it's like, oh, it's cause it's satirical. They're all just kind of like, you know, there's definitely room for that. Um, there's room to have that, you know, talk about is vigilant, is vigilanteism good or bad? There's room to have that social media commentary because we do see a really, really quick, uh, snippet of like a YouTube video that a woman uploads when he does his first murder. And not only does it not make sense because there's no way that she could have shot from that angle and gotten his, uh, left-handed shot with the getting hit by the, um, the slide, the slide on the gun. But there is that room for, like, the social media aspect of it, too. Like, well, if anybody could do it, then are they going to start filming themselves, like, being vigilantes and things like that? Uh, There's a satirical element of, um, you know, having... Again, that's a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. Because, again, in the original, you had news broadcasts, billboards for, like, the New Yorker talking about the crime and, like, the vigilantism going on. Like, you do see the media presence and how they're addressing... The crime in New York City, and then how the vigilante, uh, you know, the vigilante uh, justice from it. Here, it's again, that's like the way they handle it. It's flippant. Dean North's like, hey, you don't upload that, all right? And she's like, all right, I did it. I got a shit ton of heads. Right. And it's like, you could really have a really cynical view and address that, and how people, like, because, you know, just fucking film everything and, um, you know, for the sake of filming it and upload it, just right, to get it doesn't hits. matter who gets killed yeah, or just what happens. For hits and popular, you know. Yeah. Kind of like how Diary of the Dead went for that. Um, but George really didn't nail that one either. But, uh, yeah, but or, like, again, it's, it's a totally missed opportunity. You could yeah. show how actually social media and using it on 
to portray this issue is and then how it impacts people who then view it and because again you also have to you know can deal with like the whole fake news type crap you know yeah and i mean you have that satirical element too of um the guy who gets shot trying to be a vigilante who yeah. like fails he, he's trying to be a vigilante just like uh paul kersey and he gets shot and killed and that is brought up for like two seconds and then dropped and there was that whole element too. You know, you could have had that as a question of like, well, is this guy inspiring copycat vigilantes who are then, you know, basically getting killed because they think they can do the same things? Um, it just that all of that falls flat because the film doesn't really have that in mind to tackle as a concept. All it wants to do just, is get through show. the, revenge, the yeah. revenge portion of it, um, have that really convoluted ending of. Paul having a showdown with the rest of the the robbers that break into his house at the end of the film and then have Dean Norris really commend him and have him get off the hook. Unlike in the original Death Wish where they're not really getting him off the hook. They're saying, you need to leave. You need to get out of here. Because though you probably did, you did clean up some crime in the city, you need to get the fuck out because if you don't, we are going to end up having to arrest you. You know, like as the law moves, they're going to get you. And if I don't arrest you, someone else is going to. So get out of here. Yeah, no, the, and that's one of the great points in the original is they, they, um, because again, the original is leaning t- more towards, yes, vigilante. It is. But yeah. they're, because they're saying, you know, when they have the talk with like the mayor and the police commissioner, saying, look, muggings are down greatly because this, because he's scaring the shit out of them. So this is good, but we cannot have him doing this because it's making us look bad. And he's, again, not only that, the main point, he's breaking the goddamn law. Right. So at the end, when they catch him, they say, you know, you um, they tell him, like, look, we're not going to arrest you. We know you're the vigilante. We got you. But you need, you're going to have to get the fuck out of town. Now. Right. You understand? Because if you stay, we're going to arrest you. And you're going to go to jail. So. Yeah, it's like soft pro-vigilanteism. Because mm-hmm. he, it's not like he's getting away with it guilt free mm-hmm. he's he's got to leave i mean he's got to get out of there he's got to go to a different city which happens to be chicago and <laughs> at the end of the original um but in this case dean norris is really like no i understand it you were protecting your homestead like any good man should well not well he goes um well because he asks him about the guns he used yeah like, well he's like so you mean to tell me that cut you got on your hand which is pretty much healed now and then the one on your shoulders from the fight that happened he's like yep he's like and the guns you used, he's like, oh, I just recently bought them um, after my daughter got out because I thought this might happen. It's like, oh, okay. And what about the Glock? Because the Glock, that he, the gun that he uses um, to commit his vigilante crimes is the Glock that he gets off, stolen of, Glock, yeah. off of Miguel. Which, by the way, do you, you really think as he's getting like wheeled in, like someone's not going to notice on like Miguel's body that he's carrying a pistol on him? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, like, if he's, like, laying on his, like, back, and it's, like, in his back pocket or something, he'd either be showing or, like, he'd be, st- you know, sticking up a little bit. Yeah. But anywho, because he gets the Glock from him because it falls out when he's getting ready to do surgery on him. He kicks it kind of under the gurney and hides it so he can use it. And so Dean Norris says at the end, he's like, and hey, what about the Glock? Is that, you know, are you going to be using that anymore? And he goes, no, that's put away now. I don't, I don't have a need for it anymore. And then that's when Dean Norris, because that's him asking, like, are you going to continue being a vigilante? And with, you know, Bruce Willis saying no, 
after that. He's like, okay, all right. Yeah. But it, but the really big thing. Well, he's not threatening. He's not him, threat- him yeah. validating it. Yeah. So and he's like, saying, like, nope, you did a good thing. You're protecting your homestead. You're being a man. You know, big thing being a man. Don't eat those gluten free blueberry, uh, blueberry bars because you got to be a man. Oh, that's a great thing, too. They When uh, Dean Norris is eating like that, yeah, blueberry. Gluten-free re- bar? Yeah. And he breakfast likes, bar? Yeah, spits it out. Have you ever had a gluten-free bar? Uh, no, because I don't have celiac disease, so I don't have any reason to eat anything gluten-free. It does not taste bad. It tastes like a, like a regular bar. It tastes like blueberries. That's super exaggerated show like, well, he's a man. He eats bacon and eggs in the morning. You know what? Are you kidding me? I, I, with Bruce Willis's pay, he gets, you know... New York stripping eggs. Yeah, I know. Every morning. Like, no, I mean, just the whole thing is really just a, a like a, a I mean, I masculine... I mean, it wouldn't be bad. Patting on the back. But, I mean, it wouldn't be... Like, him, me and Norris at the end, it wouldn't be bad Um, if he just was after that. He's like, okay, you were defending your home now, and that's it. Okay. But th- th- there's no, like... But they had, like, as you said, they had to end on, like, you're being a man. You right. Did, you did what any man would do. And not only that, it, again, what, so what if he did say, like, no, I'm going to still use the Glock? Yeah. What so what, so yeah. what is Dean Norris I mean, going to do? do? Is he yeah. going to arrest him then? He doesn't really show any signs. You He's know? not going to arrest him and he doesn't have anything on him. So, I mean, he doesn't really have any definitive proof where he could arrest him at that point. So it, it's, it seems like a, yeah, like a, I mean, no matter what he says, it's an empty threat. And it's not even really a threat. It almost looks more like Dean Norris is, like, proud of him. Like, good on you. Good on you. Give it a little warm side of the door. Yeah. But, and the other thing, too, is that the the element of satire is really dissipated once, you know, we see that, that commercial for the, the gun in, hidden in the table. And then we fucking find out Bruce Willis uses that goddamn... Gun in the table to to end the robbers and make off that he you know he he succeeded he he held off the robbers his daughter and him are fine in the house and it really validates that whole aspect of like well maybe you do need a gun hidden in your coffee table you know that's perhaps that d- doesn't seem so outrageous now does it it's almost like winking at the the viewer and saying like. You thought this was going to be stupid, didn't you? You, th- you thought that coffee table was st- a stupid idea, right? Well, how about now? Well, like I said, it's almost like Grand Theft Auto, like ammunition, like yeah, especially yeah. when he she, when he goes into the gun store, like here's these guns, here's the here's the used ones, not from crimes, but used guns you can get. Here's some titties, yeah. You know, <laughs> but yeah, it's just <sighs> it's so cringy. I, I I was literally cringing at the end because. That the coffee table scene is not like surprising. It's not effective. It's really stupid. I was expecting too. Like he might as well have had fucking dokes from like Dexter. Like as he opened that table, be like surprise, motherfucker. You yeah. know, I can I can see, literally see that. Like as that was happening, that's literally what popped in my head. Like surprise, motherfucker. And I honestly wish that the ending of the film was a bit like you know the conclusion when he's actually in the ambush um, was a little bit more like fun because it doesn't even have that sense of fun and it's stupid he's talking to his hidden daughter that's hidden pretty well underneath the staircase pushed up against it is a uh like a she's retarded too (laughs) like a uh, desk table that's a good hiding spot and he's talking to her into it 
when he doesn't know how many more people like could possibly be in the house. Mm. It's like a dumb moment altogether. It's like, this is not a Paul Kersey that would actually succeed at vigilanteism. He's not very good at it. I will say, I will give props um, in the, when the family, when his wife and daughter originally getting burgled. Um, I like that. I like that term, burgled. <laughs> I'll give, I'll, I will give him props. At least the wife, right from the get-go, is like, this is what I have. Here's where it is. I'll get you it. Yeah, yeah. You know, instead of being like, oh... You know, I agree. I agree. I just think the re- the I mean, the rest of the film is just overall very stupid. And I was definitely if I wasn't out when the Beach Boys started playing at the beginning of the film to like showcase like how much of a goofball dad Bruce Willis is, then I was definitely out when they played Back in Black when he's you know figuring out how to use a gun. That's just fucking stupid. It's just. That, at that point, Lazy. if that's not glorifying you using a gun and being like, look how awesome I am. I'm listen, you know, I'm fucking listening to Black and Black while I'm using this gun. It, it, it just overall, this, yeah, like you said, Lazy, it almost plays like, uh, uh, you could have just started a trailer right there and just be like, this is Death Wish. Because that's how every sh- single trailer I think that, is I think, now. I think that's in his tra- the trailer. Yeah, that's how every single trailer is now. It's just like, let's set some classic rock as a backdrop to this action scene. Cause we saw what, like 10 trailers during our, and they were all the same fucking movie. Yeah, And it was basically that. And it's like, that's very boring now. And back in black, I was already, I was out. I was out. I was like that. This is stupid. You know, this, if this not glorifying him using this gun, then, you know, I don't know what would. And I'm not saying that I'm pro or anti gun. I, I am pro having a, you know, I I think that you can have a uh, appropriate gun to protect yourself at home. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with someone being outlandishly outspoken about having a gun wherever they need to go, um, or having a ridiculous gun. And I think that Death Wish is very outspoken in its attempts to just show like how appropriate it is to have a gun at all times, and it's just it's just dumb. It's is very much the macho man, you know, rah rah patriotic movie. But it's not uh, like, it that is not, not by Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with patriotism. Which is funny because the poster shows that he's a patriot. It has nothing to do with. I know. I, what a, I, I, I know. I, I know. But agree. I'm saying it's just it's just a terrible misrepresentation of the. I absolutely that's why, agree. That's why with like the whole gun debate, I I get annoyed. Especially because, especially now, because after another shooting, the social media debate has to rage on. I get annoyed just because a bunch of people who are pro Second Amendment, like the Constitution says, I have the right to keep and bear arms. Okay, so why aren't you also bitching too about Fourth Amendment rights violations going on right now with like the FISA courts and all that kind of stuff? And like, how come they're not going first, to the weekly first, militia meetings? For the for, you know First Amendment violations when like you hear things like Trump wants to you know restrict press and stuff. Why aren't you bitching about like all these other amendment you know th- breaches? Because oh, you don't really have a grasp of constitutional law. You just like I like my guns and I want to keep them. I like to shoot. I think shooting you know t- target shooting's fun. I don't personally own a gun because I'm too cheap. If I had enough, mo- if I had money, then yeah, I would piss some money away on a couple of guns. Um, I wouldn't keep one for self-defense. Why? I live in a rural area, 
and the chances of me ever getting robbed are fucking slim to none. It's not really worth, like, a $2,000 investment to get a gun, a gun locker, and all that, the permit, and all that kind of shit. It's just not. Sorry. I choose to live my life not in fear. Yeah. You know, if I go to a city, I'm not going to be you know, like, oh, you know. Yeah. It's, and you bring up a good point, too, because Death Wish is fear-mongering. It is definitely, like, look what's out there. You know, and... You, yeah, like, you after, know, like, after this, like, Chicago, what a hellhole it's more. Guess what? If I wanted to go to Chicago... For like a weekend, I would. Cause you know what? One day I want to go to Wrigley Field. Not a Cubs fan. I'm a really big baseball fan, so it's part. You know, I want to do that. However, when I'm there, I'm not gonna. Be- <laughs> oh my god! There, you know. Yeah, there's there could be someone around yeah. me that could no. take me out. Because again, I choose to not live my life in fear. Sorry. You know what? We- guess what? If I w- if I ever was like in a place and something like that happened, I die. You know what? I'm, when my soul is ascending to heaven or hell, I don't know. Or into the ground. If it is, uh, you know, I'm going to be like, like, wow, that's a coincidence. I, the, you know. I didn't well, think that would happen. I didn't think that would happen. The point zero 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 three four percent chance of that happened. It happened. What luck. Yeah. Well, well. <laughs> One thing that I want to talk about before we end the podcast is um, that ending, which evokes the original Death Wish ending of. And it's misplaced. Yeah, of Paul Kersey. <laughs> Arriving in a new setting and seeing again that perhaps this city is not that well off either and vowing to uh, take action to his own hands again. And this is the same sense, except in this case, it's Tribeca in New York City. Because his daughter's going to NYU. Because his, yeah, his daughter's going to NYU. Uh, there is n- like literally no semblance in th- in that in the ending that anything bad is going on in this area. You just see hit the car- the guy take like a purse. I guess, yeah. From like uh ta- like from a baggage. It's like, very so he's, quick. So so he's stealing. And then you get to see Bruce Willis go like, you know, do the look at him and do the, you know, finger gun thing from the original. However, it doesn't really work cuz again it's like you mean to tell me this $60,000 a year school or whatever doesn't have fucking police, you know, trolloping around campus all the time? It's a very quick moment, too. Like, if you blink and miss it, you won't even see that it was a stealing. It looks like an Asian guy crossing the street with a purse. That poor guy doesn't know what hit him. Probably shit his pants, went home. And I don't know why it was this bald guy in the street was mean to me. <laughs> At least in the, in the original... Uh, Bronson sees these, you know, hoodlums harassing this woman. Yeah. You have a reason to at least uh, understand why he would continue his vigilantism there. Here, it makes no sense. It it really doesn't. It seems misplaced. It seems like um, Eli Roth realized, like, well, we need this iconic scene in this film. Where can we stick it? We'll stick it at the end. We'll get put it as an Asian guy. Uh, You know, for the most part. Uh, Bruce Willis has been killing black or white guys, so let's make it an Asian guy. And it does, I mean, it just, it just seems really stupid. It just, all together, like, and who's leads, clamoring? Well, it leads to, like, oh, maybe there's going to be a sequel. You know what I mean? Well, but, yeah, but who's clamoring for a Death Wish 2 set at NYU? <laughs> no one. I don't think anyone's clamoring for that. As people walk around Starbucks or even more expensive cafes going, mm, you know, yeah. my sociology 102 class would be difficult. <laughs> 
I just got back from it all night. Yeah, right. You know, you know, I I, I just flew in from Milan yesterday. And, and I can't believe I, talk about, I, I I can only get three nights at the garden to see fish, not all four. God damn it! You know, you know what we didn't even talk about too, uh, which is kind of stupid. But at the beginning of the film, when they were talking about um, Paul's daughter going to NYU, she says, "I promise to fly in every weekend." Yeah. Really? <laughs> you promise to fly? Great, great. That'll be a thousand dollars a week. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you back. Besides the regular tuition that we're paying for you to go to NYU, a thousand dollars a week on round trip airfare. Yeah, awesome. no, yeah, no. She's like, I'll come back every weekend to do my laundry. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And it's not like it's. It doesn't sound like that's like flippant. Like she's joking. It sounds like she you know she's yeah. being serious. Yeah. She like gives him a hug. Like I'll come back. Great. Yeah. Well, that that scene also has a great line too because they're waiting for her to react. Because she's upstairs in her room, and he's like, I just, I'm an old-fashioned man. Why can't they just send letters? Yeah. You know, I'm sick of these computers. It's like, you've been a doctor for, like, how long? You, you know, the medical, especially as a surgeon, they're in the forefront of getting technology, like technology. for, you know, don't sure. be given this uh, fucking computers. Well, you you probably were having, like, the fucking PDA in, nine, you know, 90. Well, yeah, but don't you remember? I remember. Yeah. That's what I thought. Maybe. Uh, Maybe when Bruce Willis was considered a good actor? Yeah, those days are long gone. <laughs> right along, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, do you have anything else you want to add about this Death Wish remake? Yeah. What do you got? Uh, we didn't talk about poor Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, it is true. Vincent D'Onofrio is around basically like, oh, Paul, oh, Paul, oh, pa- Paul, oh, Paul, mm. See uh, his role in this one is to be, he's his, he's Bruce Willis's brother in this. In the original, the role that he's filling is his boss. No. In the original, that he's supposed to be uh, Bronson's daughter's husband. Oh uh, yeah, I guess I can see that. I was thinking maybe his his the architect boss. Too. No, because he no because he's more like because. That's one thing I hated about the uh, original was his uh, son-in-law is constantly like, Dad, come on, what's going on? What's, That's true. Yeah, what's, he is. Yeah. What's wrong, Dad? And it's like, like, pl- like, please, I know there's people out there that do that, but that just that's just fucking annoying. Like, yeah, like, oh god, I forgot about that character, the the whole son. But he's thing. well, he's important though because. He's like a moral compass, right? Exactly. For, yeah, in the is, original, yeah. and that's what Vincent D'Onofrio is supposed to be in this. But instead, he's a he's his brother, um, which makes sense in the context of this film. And also, not How, a great moral compass either, because we know that he's already been in trouble. But we don't know what, what the, we don't though. know what it was. Yeah, but not a great moral compass. Is obviously. it something mob related? Because that when he got his job back, he's like, yeah, I got you know again. My, he's too. like, he's like, I got my union job back. We you didn't, know? We, I mean, that would have been another <laughs> perfect example you know? of talking about like what are the cons of vigilanteism? Do you have to kill your own brother now because he, you he, know, you're a vigilante and he's a criminal? Like, what are you know? It misses out on that whole thing. There's just no like subtext in this film whatsoever. It sets I know, up what, all what's these a, like what's a crime that di- dictates death? Yeah, it sets up all at these least perfect uh, examples of what you could talk about, and then it doesn't talk about them. Yeah. Like, okay, where's oh, fine? Where's Carl Urban to show up? Because he's dread. He's judge, jury, and executioner. So, like, you know, at least that fucking makes sense. You know, he gets, he doles out and dictates. You know, what's you know the what you uh, crime he committed. 
what sentence you get, and he's gonna deal out that sentence. Yeah. Here, it's, again, it's yeah. So it's like technically your brother's a criminal, but again, we don't really know what for. Like I said, what is it for? Is it uh, like what I uh, gestate from it is maybe he is something mob related. Why? Because he. Uh, just because it's the stereotypical, like, hey, well, you know, he originally lost his job and he asked for money from Bruce Willis. And then when he went to pay him back, he's like, yeah, I got, you know, got my union job. And he's, yeah. the way he kind of talks, it sounds like he's coming off as a stereotypical, hey, bibbidi boppity boopy, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I just like that, you know, I, I will say that I like Vincent D'Onofrio in the most part. I like him in Law and Order Criminal Intent. I like the way that he comes off as, like, some quirky, like, Columbo type character uh in that in here more, really just, just more disheveled like yeah. your drunk uncle like showing yeah, up basically like, hey, what's... yeah I mean in this film he does come off like that quirkiness um but he's really relegated to like just um confusingly yelling out things like oh what, what you know what, what, what are you doing why are you doing this you know what, what are you doing uh apparently he's also a baseball prospect apparently but I, I think I like I like him in this. I think he's entertaining in this. I think he does the best that he can with what he's got in this. Um, I just think that the script doesn't really call for him to do much. And even at the end of the film, his presence isn't really necessary. I mean, he finds out that Paul is the vigilante. He's like, Paul, you can't really do this. Then he covers for Paul. It really doesn't make a difference because if he didn't cover for Paul and the police knocked on the door, Paul didn't answer. Same scenario. They would have just, just left. They would be like, all right, we'll have to go come back with a warrant. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes no difference to have him in this film. He's not even really a moral compass in that sense because he doesn't really do anything that pushes Paul one way or the other. I, I wouldn't say that he, what he says to Paul about, like, you know, you have to end this really makes a difference to him. What really makes a difference to him is that his, his daughter comes out of her coma and that the eventuality that those people are going to come back to his house is the the last, you know, that's mm. it. That's part of his revenge. That's it. Once he kills them, like what other, he doesn't have any other use for being a vigilante. So he, he's going to end it. So I, I wouldn't say that Frank even really has a, a moral compass role in this. And well, not only that too, the whole motivation to, um, what Paul Kersey gets out of being a vigilante is different, and the original makes sense because after all the crime that's going on in New York, his wife gets murdered and raped, his daughter gets raped, and is in, now in like institution because of it. You know, he decides he's had enough, and he's gonna take up the mantle and stop it. You know, he's gonna stop the crime. And he's gonna he's a one man train. He's gonna stop crime. And the title literally comes yeah. from him not caring yeah. if he lives or dies because he doesn't really have. He and now he have any reason it, it, to live it's, or die. It, yeah, it's like a double entendre because it also applies too. It's a death wish for him and to the uh, the criminals he faces. Yeah. But like the motivation makes sense for why he's going after. Even though, like I said, trouble seems to he's looking for trouble, but trouble's also finding him in New York. But again, context of the situation, the the scenarios he puts is put in all makes sense. Here, and not, only, and not only that too. In the original, as I said, there's no real chance of him ever finding he because he does he never finds who did commit the crimes towards his family. Never finds them. 
never runs into Jeff Goldblum in the street. By that point, he's too busy getting ready for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. So, and, and, so and, and, but here, Bruce Willis, what's his motivation? Especially after he, why is he going after other criminals when he knows the criminals that perpetrated the crimes against his family? Yeah. So, again, like, what's the motivation? And if the motivation was he's going to stop crime now because he's a one-man wrecking train, after he gets those, the criminals that perpetrate against him, why is he still not being a vigilante? He's like, no, the cops aren't doing it. Because, again, as we said, Dean Norris really doesn't give him an ultimatum. He just no, kind of like, oh, just okay. asks him. Whereas in the original, he's given that ultimatum. You either stop being a vigilante or your ass is going to jail. Yeah. And you have, so you either, you know, skip town and you get off of the warning or we're going to arrest you. Yeah, I would say, like, here it's even more glorified. At least in the original film, there was some glory in him being a vigilante, but there is also consequences. Like, you literally, you got to leave your, your home, you've got to move away. Uh, if you don't, you will be arrested. There's not, like, that sort of, like, get off scot-free that... Bruce Willis has in this film. It's just, you know, here, it's just like nobody cares. It, thanks for doing our job for us. I'm going to eat your pizza. No, yeah, too. Like, what's, like, again, what's, like, what's the mental catharsis for him? Is it just the... Is it him killing? Like, you know, like I said, it's all it's all muddled. It doesn't make sense. It's not expounded upon. There's no elaboration. It's just... Like, oh, yeah. yeah I mean, you see him talking to the shrink, and, like, after he kills someone, she's like, how are you doing? He's like, oh, I feel good. It's like... Why do you feel good? Is it because you killed people? Because you're a murderer now, or is it? Be- yeah. Or is it because now you have a warped sense of self, like a purpose? Again, and that would be a good satire point too, because again, the whole argument of what's you know the only thing that stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yeah, well, you know what we saw in Parkland, and it's not the case because uh, the sheriff kind of, you know the one deputy or whatever was a good guy with a gun, and he didn't go into the building. Right. So like you know. And again, that's like a, that's a stupid assumption too. Like again, like yeah, and then this and putting in this idea again, ma- this macho idea as you said of like being like I'm fucking James Bond, you know, yippee ki yay, motherfucker, and like if someone shows up with a gun, I'm gonna shoot them. Right. And I can guarantee you, most people aren't that crack shots, especially probably under the circum those tight circumstances. No. Even if you were, with your adrenaline rushing, the stress and press pressure probably, and all that you'd be facing. Um, yeah, good luck. I I don't trust you under that circumstance. Right, exactly. Um, that's why you know being a police officer is a goddamn tough job. Yeah, I I pro- I can tell you right now, I wouldn't have like the nerves probably like like a situation like that to probably handle it properly. Right. So I mean, I, like I said, it's all it's all muddled. It's all just cobbled together. Little thought. Probably just hey, quick cash in. Yeah. Well, no. Absolutely. Uh, well, it, jokes on them because they didn't make anything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's definitely getting pounded. Um, both, well, well, rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, it's just all around. It's a frustrating movie, laughable often, and it has it's a stupid premise. It doesn't it doesn't match up with the original Death Wish, and it definitely doesn't match up with the like the novel Death Wish. And it's not even like in the same spirit no. as I told you, like. We, we've made fun of it a lot. RoboCop the remake is one of our banes of our existence. It's a terrible, terrible remake. However, 
after watching this, I almost looked to RoboCop as inspiration. Like, ah, remember RoboCop? Remember RoboCop? Hmm. Remember when we thought things could get worse? I remember. Yeah, well, it's been fucking five years now. <laughs> All right, so um, out of ten gluten-free blueberry bars, what would you give uh, Death Wish? The Eli Roth remake. I'll give it a three out of ten. Ooh, that's pretty low. Um, I'm borderline two and a half. Um, honestly, I didn't. Even, I didn't say it before either. Um, if I saw this not with you, and I and I wasn't going to review it. I might have walked out on this film three different times. I can count at least off the top of my head three different times I thought about walking out on this film. Mm -hmm. Granted, as I've said before, I never really would walk out on a film because I'm too damn cheap. You know, I pay the money, I'll have to sit through it, but I I can tell you right now, I thought about it quite a few times. Um, First time back in Black Blade. You know, the just uh, bastardizing... One of my favorite films from the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this is a bad film. It's terribly underthought. There, there was like I said, it, it's a the the crux in the moral in the motif of the film is a complicated one. It's a very complicated topic, and it's done with no tact at all. And it's not done with any thought at all. Again, the original, I think what makes the original work so well, as we talked about in the review of it, is it's simple, too. It handles it thoughtfully, but it's very simple and but and well thought out in its simplicity. Here, it's just shit's jumbled together for the sake of, we have to just hit these certain beats to make it like, it kind of feels like Death Wish. Um... And you end up getting a underwhelming bastardization of the original that's not even entertaining. There's no popcorn fun to be had. It's not. It's, it's not like I, there's not like a. It's not like a fun summer romp. I saw like one review is like it's you know like got these fun action sequences. No, the the action in this is as by the numbers bland and boring as possible. Bruce Willis is fucking god awful in this. Um, absolutely god awful and dreadful. He's dull. Bland, wooden, vanilla. He's every, you know, adjective under the sun for an underwhelming actor and performance. And as I said before, I think everybody else in this film is fits that too, except Dean Norris and a little bit of Vincent D'Onofrio. But even still, I mean, I can't compliment Vincent D'Onofrio because it, there's nothing really with him. At least Dean Norris has a little bit going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is... Really bad. Before you give your, uh, your point, this is something I forgot to mention, um, and I want to mention real quick, uh, about how, like, you can talk about how vigilanteism is possibly bad. We totally skipped over the one scene in the club where he hears a cell phone ring where he th- thinks it's the bad guy, and he shoots at it, you know, at the bathroom stall door, and he finds out it's just a phone there. Wouldn't it have been cool if it was somebody else taking yeah. a shit on that <laughs> toilet? Someone innocent and Bruce Willis happened to have their phone ring at the same time. Yeah, and, yeah. Couldn't that be like a thought-provoking, like, yeah, like oh shit moment? Like, like yeah. I just murdered yeah, an innocent like, like, per- person for no reason. Yeah, you because know, isn't 
part of the fun of a drama having character arcs? Yeah. What's what's Bruce Willis's character arc in this? Well, he decides that he gets angry, <laughs> and that's it. I'm angry. Yeah. I feel upset. I'm going to act it out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I would probably give this movie uh, four out of... 10 blueberry gluten-free bars. You're too generous. I guess I am. I I guess I'm generous. I mean, I think that it's... You weren't even generous to the original. It's not... It's not a good movie. It's... It's, um... uh, The only thing I really could say about it that's good is that it's, um... A well-shot movie, and that's not really what I'm looking for, even from, like, a a Death Wish remake. It kind of has a strange blue tint to it. It does, yeah. But it's not something that I'm like, like, I'm not looking, I actually would rather prefer it if it was like grainy and sort of like, you know, damaged film looking because like it looks almost a little too perfect in the way that it's framed and shot and kind of been modernized for, you know, new audiences. Um, But, uh, you know, everything from Bruce Willis being this very zoned out, very much nonchalant about literally everything in this film to the diehard-esque aspect of comedy that it has, you know, often pushed into the the, uh, plot itself. Uh, To the Eli Roth, um, obviously, you know, gore effects that he he inputs here, which are really, like, few and far between. So I would have rather either, either go with it, run with it, do a lot of that gore effect, or not do it at all. But the way that it comes out and that it's sort of like only a couple times really makes it seem out of, you know, out of context for the rest of the film. Um, all of that really adds up to a very, 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 very mediocre film. It, it, I, not even mediocre, but really borderline bad film. Not fun to watch. Um, and it's only an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's not an even, hour it's and 40 not, minutes. It's not even two hours, which like every film these days has to be at least... Two fucking hours, and it's not even, you know... Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't even do that, and it's... It's, you know, it's frustrating, and even if you take politics out of it, you take out contemporary events out of it, you know, you, you don't think about, like, you know, Parkland, was it really a, bit, a bad time to release this film? It, it, no time's a good time to release this film. It sucks all around. No one is ever gonna watch this film and be like, what's well, a good time to release it? You know, <laughs> there hasn't been, a, a you know, a lot of mass shootings lately, so, uh, yeah. The only time, the only time this ever would be probably an appropriate viewing experience would be like at an NRA rally where everybody was like booyah and they raised their guns up in the air and were like shot them off, and then somebody in the distance got a headshot because they the bullet trajectory <laughs> parabellum <laughs> accidentally took out some innocent person. Uh, being a very good uh, um thematic resonance with uh, vigilantism. It's just, it's all around a very stupid movie. I think they also, and you're right, they should have upped the gore, because at least then that'd be like, it it would... Something. It'd be something. It'd be, yeah. it'd be tacky. And, but it's, but, it's but, but again, it's like, well, at least it's, you know, it's got that and, and it Actually, it would be a little bit shocking with like the Home Alone-esque like comedy sitcom ding, of, ding, the, ding, uh, ding. of the beginning of the film, <laughs> of like just... Focusing on how much of a, like a hokey TV drama the film was was at the beginning with the family element. So, you know, what would your family do if they were put in this situation? Not watch Death Wish, as an example. That's probably that not watch the Eli Roth Death Wish. So, 
Um, anything else? I think that's it. That's all I got. I I think we've lambasted this enough. (laughs) Um, next time on this, uh, Blood and Micron podcast, we're doing, uh, Leprechaun 3. Because it's going to be nearly St. Patty's Day. So, uh... The yearly tradition continues. That's right, that's right. Um... Now, which one uh, is Leprechaun 3? I don't remember, to be honest <laughs> with you. I know that uh, what I can say is not looking forward to it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't really remember Leprechaun 3. I know I've seen it, like, one time. Um, I really just want to get to next year when we do Leprechaun in Space. <laughs> we should just skip Leprechaun 3 altogether and do Leprechaun in Space, but... Oh, it's Leprechaun in Las Vegas. Oh, yes, that's right, that's right, yeah. I have seen it too, but I haven't seen it in years because, um, like I said, uh, I've seen like the first th- three or four. I can't remember. Yeah, I've, I've uh, seen they used, it. Because but... they used to air them on UPN like all the time during Halloween. As you can imagine, it's very uh, forgettable. I can tell you what's not forgettable. Leprechaun 2 and uh, that beautiful n- early 90s, you know, guitar rock song. Yes. Kid laying down. Love it. Oh, that. I know. That and the great cameo in it. Yes. <laughs> we'll be, so, uh, you know, we've, we've got that next coming up in two weeks for St. Patty's Day. And then I think that's really going to bring us to, uh, we're going to have one movie in between before Avengers Infinity War. So. Unless they move it up again. <laughs> yeah, unless they move it up another week. Um, other than that, thanks for listening. Uh, we are on iTunes. We're on Podbean at uh, bloodandblackrumpodcast.podbean.com where you can catch all of our new shows. Uh, we have a patron page on there where you can donate to us. We're on Facebook at Blood and Black Rum Podcast. Um, we're on Twitter, Blood and Black Rum. We have a, an email account where you can email us, let us know what you want us to cover on the show. It's bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, otherwise, you know, write to us, let us know what you like or what you don't like about the show. Leave us a iTunes review or a review on any other podcasting app that you use and we hope to see you back next time for leprechaun 3 as we celebrate st patty's day drink green beer and overall just get uh our irish on well we won't be drinking green beer so don't lie to them i want to drink green beer this this year Mm, you go get it then (laughs) oh